I love my work. I love writing. The sounding out of a paragraph, moving words here and there, back and forth, pasting and undue editing. The growing of a manuscript, like a plant out of a barely visible seed. I like stories. I like words. Should there be more to life than this? I remember what I decided in the park. I decided yes. I'm not done with this life yet. Like my granddad says, it's a feast and I love eating. So, spend more on a flat, whatever I want for the perfect one. Pay for private healthcare, get my eyes fixed. A minus five in both eyes if I woke up in a fire I'd run into the doorframe. Write my novel, this one, about the man in prison. And if the lump was cancer and I had a short while to live, if it were confirmed, move to the countryside, possibly. I loved that cabin in Maine I went to, in another life, in love. I would like water, a mountain. Take great trips, travel, maybe short ones. Move in with my family? No, but I would spend time with them, book holidays, fun things to do. I'd see my friends, Coralie, Mel, go to those Scottish cabins we always talked about, be satisfied. I don't think I'd be too sad that I hadn't done all the acting or singing I wanted, something I used to do more of, but the writing would matter to me, saying what I wanted to say. I would breathe deeply and take it all in, every tree, every blade of grass. I would be honest. I wouldn't do anything I didn't really want to do. But right, I mean, what till then? There should be a living room and a new novel and 2020 vision. What do I mean when I say a house with a living room? I mean a space to have people over, with a garden, with square footage in my room for a desk and a chair, with wood floors. I love wood floors. I mean a house with room to live so I can start living. All I've ever done successfully is work. I never considered it might not be enough to satisfy me in my 34-year-old body on my deathbed. I also never thought I would have to try or even think about any of the other stuff, love, children, home. I thought options would present themselves like a really fucking delicious buffet and I would choose between blonde and dark, tall and short, artist or skater, Slavic or pharaonic. I would find someone to dance until 6am with and raise children with and shag all weekend. All of those things I would find in the same person. I would find them young and it would last forever. I would have four children and write every day. I would travel and burrow into the idea of home. I would salivate at all my glorious options and pick up a spoon. Look, we're all dying anyway. An impending deadline can be galvanising. I book an appointment for laser eye surgery. I order an iced coffee. I open spareroom.com and start signing up to open houses. Hi, friends. Welcome. This is our Arts Council England-funded podcast, Writing Coercive Control. My name is Abigail Tartellin. I'm your host. You can call me Abby or Abs. And that was a wee excerpt from my work-in-progress novel, Ordinary Woman Turns 30. I want to give a very warm welcome to listeners on the podcast and to our live Zoom audience. The space we're creating here today, we're creating together with all of your goodwill and interest in this sensitive and difficult topic. It's a safe, respectful and kind space, and I really appreciate your help in creating it. If you have questions for myself or my guest, please pop them in the chat and we'll endeavour to answer them. So I wanted to say, if you're affected by these topics, feel free to log in and log out, mute your phone. You can come back to us. This is going to be released as a podcast, remember, so don't worry. Okay, there's no judgment. There's no blame. There's no shame. We're all in this together. This podcast is the first in a six-part series with a mix of live interactive episodes like this one and pre-recorded podcasts. And we're discussing writing about coercive control. Have you ever done something you didn't want to do because you were manipulated? 
Maybe you felt the other person made it impossible to say no, threatened you, perhaps not in words, but with mood or tone, or with the idea that they'd leave you if you didn't do it. Has anybody ever made you feel like you'd be hurting them to leave and so you didn't? Coercive control is when someone uses emotional manipulation and psychological violence, things like unkind or dismissive words, unhappy or angry facial expressions, shouting, creating sour moods and threatening tones to harm, punish, shame, guilt or frighten victims in order to control them and make them do something that the abuser wants them to do. In the EU, one in two women have experienced psychological violence from a partner in their lifetime. We're going to talk more about the definition of coercive control in this series, but right now I want us to think about control in a larger sense because this is an endemic form of abuse and so its roots have to be cultural. Over the next few months, I'll be releasing an episode a month, I'm going to be talking to Rowan Hisayo Buchanan about a parent's controlling relationship from the point of view of a child in her novel The Sleep Watcher, Winnie M. Lee about control in industry and the workplace in her thriller Complicit, and Chimen Suleiman about intimate partner coercive control. And I'm hoping to book an author who could talk to us about historical coercive control as well. Today, we're going to be talking about writing state control in the Islamic Republic of Iran with my guest Sahar Dalajani. Sahar is going to be telling us about her first novel, The Children of the Jacaranda Tree, and her work in progress, a follow-up, both of which are based on her family's own story. So when I'm reading as an author at an event, I like to ask everyone to consider this time adult story time. I know you're in your own room, but we're kind of creating this atmosphere together where Sahar can feel the magic is happening. So get comfy, close your eyes. Let's hear an extract from Sahar's work in progress novel, The Luminous Blue. I'll kill you if you leave. That was what her mother told her, even before Nedan mentioned anything about leaving. Aza's eyes shined as she spoke, sweat glistening on her upper lip. But not even such a threat could stop Neda. She was young. She was in love. She had her whole life ahead of her. A few days later, she packed her bags. Neither Aza nor Neda mentioned what had been said earlier. It hung between them as they cried in each other's arms. Ismail watching over them, smoking a cigarette ferociously like it was a breath fresh of air. That was the first time Neda left, now almost 20 years ago. She has been leaving ever since. It's as if leaving is the only way she can keep her balance, find her way in the world. She has not been able to stop, not even to turn back and see what she leaves at her wake. It will turn her to stone, she knows, if she turns around. Neda thinks about her mother as she gets off the elevator in the old dainty apartment building on the Upper West Side where she lives. She walks across a clean, mirror-lined lobby more briskly than she needs to. No one's watching, she tells herself. No one's here. She slows down as she approaches the glass door, the city outside. She can already hear its hum, its never-dying hum. From behind the glass, she can see the concierge at the curb looking upward as if surveying the skies for birds or planes or invisible kites or just bits of blue. She holds her breath and pushes against the door. It's autumn. Neda is going to her reading, alone. She doesn't like to go to her readings alone. She doesn't like to go accompanied either. After so many years of doing this, she still hasn't figured out her threshold for loneliness. She's working on it, she thinks. She's working on many things. Her mother rushes back into her thoughts as she walks down West 81st Street, relieved to see the fall colors of Central Park. It's like Park Yashar, her mother noted the last time she and Ismail came to visit her in New York. 
I would walk through it every time I was going to work. This was later, as I pointed out, as she always did when she talked about the past. Later, as in after the bloodshed, after the deaths, after prison. Later, as in after we built something we could call life. Her mother was obsessed with building back their lives, Neda remembers. She would claw and pounce and bite if she had to. Piecing back the shards, dressing the wounds, finding them a home, fending off the shadows of terror as far away from their lives as possible. It was a matter of honor with her mother, later life. It was a matter of principle. Neda adjusts a shawl tighter around her as a gust of wind swarms past. The sidewalk is abuzz with a rush of people on their way home. She hopes she doesn't run into anyone she knows. Her editor lives not too far from here, friends she has been avoiding for the past few weeks. It's ironic how big New York is and how easy it is to run into people you know. It would be awkward if she did. They would probably ask where she was heading to. She would have to say the truth, even if she'd rather lie. She has the option of being vague. I'm going to a reading, she could say. Whose, they would ask. And that would be awful. It would be horrifying if then she'd have to reply, my own. I'm going to read from my book to an audience, like reading time or playtime or bedtime, her husband used to say. Children I read to before bed. Yes, bedtime, she'd laugh. I can put my audience to sleep. But the readings are so much shorter nowadays anyway. People don't seem to want to hear the author read anymore. They want to hear her speak. Neda has never understood that. If she were any good at speaking, she would not have become a writer. I'm not good with words, it once slipped through her mouth. She had to correct herself with out loud words. I'm more comfortable with silent ones, with the ones I don't have to utter. She has even mispronounced words at times during her readings. The same words she wrote with such diligence, such care. She's forgotten to check the pronunciation to make sure what she thought the English word sounded like was indeed its true sound. It was caused her a great deal of embarrassment in the beginning of her career, when she was young and thought every little mistake was going to cause her downfall. It's good to age, she thinks. Oh God, it's such relief to age. This would make her mother laugh. My daughter doesn't age. You'll always be my little Neda, my quiet little Neda. Remember how you would never speak? Remember how difficult it was for you? They told me to take you to a doctor. They said, you must see a psychologist. This child needs to speak. This child needs help. I never gave in. If she's my child, she will speak. Saying this, Azaz's face would beam in triumph. Now you speak everywhere. You never stutter. Oh, Maman, you know so many secrets about me. Okay, that's done. <laughs> so, um... That was an excerpt of the novel that I'm working on. Hi, Abby. And um, so this was an excerpt that I actually was able to have it published in McSweeney's um, last month. So that's why I'm actually comfortable reading it, because if if it was completely sort of like unpublished, unseen work, it would be really, really overwhelming to read it. So um, so. The, this, the book that I'm working on is sort of a continuation to what I was working on, what, what I worked on for my, for my first novel, Children of the Jacaranda Tree, as you mentioned, that, that came out 10 years ago. And um, Children of the Jacaranda Tree was sort of inspired by, by my family's history in Iran post-1979 revolution. They were 
political prisoners because they were active against the Islamic Republic, the newly established Islamic Republic. They were secular leftists. And Sahar, I remember in 2020, I did a series interviewing authors and I interviewed you on my Instagram channel. I was saying to you that you were actually born in a prison, weren't you, where your mother was a political prisoner in Evan Prison in Tehran. Um, but that you're one of the smiliest people I know. And I was saying, um, <laughs> how are you so happy and joyful all the time? And you said, I don't take it personally. That always really stuck with me. So I just wondered if you'd tell us, you know, how your mum ended up being in prison. Did she just go to a protest? Um, no, actually, um, they were active. Both my parents were um, politically active, um, officially active. And um, so it wasn't really about protests anymore because at the time the revolution was over. So we had this new established, what what we still have, um, the new established Islamic um, Republic. And um, at the time, the political activism sort of went underground and um, they were um, underground activists, um, sort of secular leftist activists. And, so and what, does um, that, what does that entail for people that don't know? Well, um, because before the revolution, you know, the revolution ousted the Shah, which we had, we had a monarchy, we had a king, uh, actually we had uh, sort of, it was a monarchy for almost um, 2,500 years. And this was the first time that um, there was a republic in Iran after the revolution. So my parents were active during the revolution. They were against the Shah. Um, they wanted to overthrow the monarchy, but they wanted a sort of um, a secular socialist leaning republic, not a theocracy, not not um, what we had later on, the Islamic Republic. So that's why afterwards they, they kept on sort of their activism and their fight. So 1979, the revolution happened. And in 1983, that was the last wave of arrest of all political oppositions. So whatever did not for, for the Islamic Republic did not make part of their um, sort of political system and did not agree to them. Everybody had already gone to prison and 1983 was the last wave. And that's when my my parents were arrested and my mom was pregnant with me. My brother was already two years old. Um, she, he was with my grandparents, my mom's um, parents. And um, so I was born in prison, in Evin prison. Some of you might might know the prison by now is quite notorious <laughs> because it still continues to have many political prisoners throughout all of these decades, um, even today. So I was born there. I, I stayed with my mom about 40 to 45 days. And then I was sort of um, given to my grandparents. I stayed with my grandparents until both my parents were released. Children of the Jacaranda Tree sort of begins with this, with this birth in prison and sort of the beginning of of the our generation like my generation born in the 80s after the revolution yeah and then the luminous blue your forthcoming work in progress novel that continues on from can you explain where the last book left off for people who've not read it yet Sure. So, so basically, the, the last book um, had two parts. So, the first part was um, either based inside prison or life in that same, in, in in during that time for people who were living outside of prison, but families, parents, and children who were outside of prison. That was the first part, which was set in the eighties, and then there was a second part, which was set in two thousand nine, where we had in Iran, we had a wave of. Um, big wave of protest against the against the regime, which was then um, known as the Green Movement, 
And so like all those children who were born in the first part of the book in the 80s, they were now adults in their mid to um, late um, 20s. And then they were sort of making their own decisions about this regime, about their own fight, about their own responsibility and role in, in this fight. This one, again, it has a past and a present. And the past is, again, in the, um, set in the 80s in Iran, but it's about life after prisons. And it takes one of the characters from, a, actually, three of the characters from Jacaranda from Tree, Azar, who's the woman who gives birth, and her daughter and, her, um, and Azar's husband. And um, it's all about how do you sort of build again? How do you build back relationship with um, your children that you, you know, you haven't seen for so long? How do you build back a relationship with your parents whom you feel guilty towards because, you know, you, you made them go through hell, basically, or you feel like you made them go through hell. You feel like it's your fault. How do you live in a society that continues to um, consider you as enemy? Because even if you're free, it doesn't mean that you're sort of free inside, right? You're still considered anti-revolutionary. So how do you find a job? How do you rent a place? How do you start living your life when you're completely broken inside? And um, besides that, when um, my parents were released, a few years later in 1988, there was the mass executions in Iran of political um, activists. And my uncle was amongst them executed. So having had that, that bloodshed, how do you move on from that as a survivor and continue life? And I mean, that's, you know, already one way in which state control, even when they've not literally got you controlled in prison, still permeates your life and affects, you know, your family and and their relationships to themselves and the outside world. So Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say something about that? Because I'm going to start asking you some questions, but... Okay, no, go ahead. You ask me questions. Okay. (laughs) So I've got um, a few, just a few questions that for Sahar, but if anybody has some questions that they want to ask, stick them in the chat and we will get to them. I loved that in preparing for this event, you, I just wrote this down. You, you said to me, when we talk about any kind of control, we are also talking about resistance. Why do you, did you think that socio-political coercive control could be a good topic to write about? Because um, when we when you told me about this the first time, I felt like, you know, in in dicta- of course in, in coercive control, when we, for example, talk about um, domestic violence, we talk about this sort of fear. Um, we 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 stop doing things because we're already afraid of the consequences you know sometimes you don't even need to see the consequences or you see it some happening um, maybe to someone else or you see it happening in another time in a dictatorship everything is sort of um controlled through fear and punishment and when we were talking about prison and how when you were just saying right now how um even if you're outside of prison it still controls you a lot of the times in dictatorships it's just um, it's not only that you might end up in in in, in prison. It's also seeing other people. It's sometimes they they try to make um, examples of other people to scare everybody else into um, inaction, into going back home, into sort of that isolation that you were you were feeling. It dictatorships are extremely isolating just as it happens with coercive control. You can't talk to anyone, you can't trust anyone, you don't know who to trust. And once that mistrust has been sort of ingrained over years and years, um, you 
start feeling alone. And when you start feeling alone, then um, you don't know who, who to turn to and you start feeling weak and you start feeling vulnerable. But I always say that it's important to, to talk about resistance because in all of those things that we say, it's still people resist, people sort of fight back. So these methods are very much alive, these dictatorial methods of control and um, suppression. Um, but at the same time, there are always people who are resisting, there are pe always people who are fighting back. So I always think that it's important to talk about both of them and never just about only one of them. So people are not only victims, they're also pe people who um, take action. When people, so, you know, some of the authors I've, I'm, I'm going to have on, um, and myself included, because this, the, the, I got the funding from Arts Council England for the podcast because I'm writing about coercive control in my own work in progress novel. You're the only person on who's also doing a work in progress novel, which I think is really cool because you see people at a time when they're like struggling with writing about things and really thinking about kind of the, the you know the risks and challenges of of writing about coercive control but most of my authors i'm going to have on are typically write they're writing as survivors they've already been through something and i think that's true mostly of coercive control that one is writing as a survivor but you're writing about a situation that's continuing and i think you said to me you know what happens when you're out of it but it's still ongoing and and you know, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that experience and what that's like? Yeah. I think um, this is very particular of the Islamic Republic that, um, first of all, it has lasted so long. So, so many generations of us have lived through it. My parents have lived through it. I have lived through it. If I had a, a child, probably by now they would be teenagers and they would have already lived through it because we now see during last year protests that most of these, um, most of the protesters were, there these kids 15 year old 16 17 so already it's passed on to a new generation this this trauma and also this will for for a better life and for freedom and this is what happens so a lot of times when i i read of course a lot about um of all the authors who have written about dictatorships in in different countries but a lot of these times that that dictatorship is over or when you watch a movie about argentina or chile that dictatorship is over so there's this sense, this, this lightness to it. It's something that we have all survived together and we have overcome and now we're out of it. And now we're sort of analyzing the past. But in Iran, that's not the case. Some of us has, have survived terrible tragedies like my family has, but it doesn't mean it's over. And when it's not over, it's a very strange feeling because you feel like, especially if you've left the country like I have, like my family has, so you kind of feel like now you're safe. I can talk about what happened to my family because I was out of the country. People who are inside the country cannot still talk about what happened to their family 40 years ago. And so it, you become sort of survivor slash witness. You're both talking about something that has happened to you as a survivor of it. But you're also witnessing because you keep seeing it happening to other people. You keep seeing the same exact method, this method of putting pressure on families not to talk about what happened, um, arresting families, even families who were innocent, you know, families who weren't part of the protest, but maybe their son was or their daughter was. It was exactly what happened to my family. And you just keep seeing that generation after generation. So it's a very 
it's very overwhelming really. And it's really exhausting because you feel like, okay, I talked about it. In other circumstances, you would think that you talk about it and now we can make a better world because now we can base it on something that we know and we, we, we will hope that this would help for it not to repeat that yeah. national tragedy. But as you're writing, as I'm writing, every time I'm writing a book, something is happening in Iran and people are being killed and people are being imprisoned. And so it's it kind of feels like yeah. it's a sort of a non-ending fight and a non-ending tragedy at the same time. Yeah, because, you know, if you're writing about your personal story, that is part of your growth, isn't it? And it's cathartic. And you feel like once I've written about it and I've really reckoned with it, um, but it's ongoing. And do you, is that something that you worry about your family when you're writing your books? No, you know, not anymore. Like 10 years passed. So I've learned not to not to worry. In the beginning, of course, you know, you may, that's another thing about dictatorships. You could also, it's not so much only about you anymore either. You know, you have so many words. You censor, you could censor yourself or um, sort of stop yourself from doing things and saying things because you're worried it could happen to other people. So there's this sense of blackmail too, dictatorships survive on and thrive on this sense of um emotionally blackmailing us you know but now no because for the past 10 years so many people have started talking about it and even in iran they have started talking about what happened in the 80s and the the massacre of 1988 so when children of the jacaranda came out it was a different times i would say and 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 i would say that it's a very positive thing that we we have all started talking about what happened to us then. And we, I feel like people are sharing what's happening to them now a lot more than in the past too. Before we did this Zoom, we talked about how when you were writing Children of the Jacaranda Tree, was it a period of like relative calm? I don't know, because you were saying that there have been quite a lot of arrests recently and a lot of activity there recently. And so... <laughs> and we were saying as well that the world in general is just slipping slipping into this sort of more right-wing territory and, and we're, you know, with Trump and everything. It's not good news. There hasn't been good news for a while. Although obviously you have Biden there in the States now and he's been able to make some moves. But who knows what will happen this year in November? You know, I, and I, as I was saying, you said that thing about not taking things personally. Do you still feel that way or has anything changed in the light of the current situation in Iran, which, of course, is a continuation of the struggle your parents went through? You know, how do you still remain hopeful that writing can help? I have moments when I'm more hopeful and optimistic and I have moments when um, I'm not as optimistic and as I would like to be. There are many reasons why it's important to speak and why it's important to write. Um, I do think that stories bring us closer to each other. You know, I I do think that literature is a democratic force because it has so many voices in it, and we all hear about each other, and it it teaches us um, empathy and compassion and um, understanding, and brings us to everybody's living room. You know. And um, and I think it's it's so that's why in the long run, I mean, what would we be without stories? We would really, I don't think there would be much left without stories, you know, of us, of me. Um, it's it's unfortunate because 
at the same time, it seems like there's no end to to violence. It seems like, you know, dictatorships all around the world, and not only dictatorships, also also more governments that are sort of, you know, borderline <laughs> sometimes, um, they all use the same methods, you know, the same methods of violence and oppression and fear and um, isolation and humiliation. I think it's a very important fact, you know, yeah. dictatorships humiliate us. Sometimes, you know, we're not so much broken by violence, but we are broken by humiliation because we can't speak our mind because we can do what we want because at every turn we have to check everything you know right now in Iran for example after the after last year's protest where women it was against the mandatory hijab in in Iran people and women are still going out into the streets not wearing their hijab and they're facing arrest they're facing um assault, they're fearing has, uh, harassment, they're facing all kind of terrible punishments and so on. And they still keep going. And I sometimes speak to some of them or friends of friends or family. And they say, you know, from the moment I leave my house, I'm scared, even though yeah. I'm doing it, I'm still doing it, but I'm scared until, until I reach whatever I need to reach. So just think that not you're not even in control of what you wear. You know how humiliating that is? Like you're not even, you can't even decide what to wear. So I think like sort of taking this independence, this autonomy from us, you know, we become people who are constantly like looking around and trying to understand what could be safe for us, what could be safe for others. And it's just nerve wracking and it's um, exhausting because it doesn't give you time to think about anything else. All day, you're just trying to make make sure you get from one polite place alive to another place you know it's just it's how much energy you need to do that every day so but again they talk about it they write about it I write about it so I know and then I guess it's a struggle that will keep going and and the only way we can keep it alive is just to not let it die you know and and, and talk about it and write about it and pass the stories on and humiliation is so you know even if we haven't and the people on the call haven't been haven't lived under state control everybody knows humiliation and it's so paralyzing isn't it and writing is at least an action that you can take absolutely yeah. yes yes absolutely and and it, it gives you a voice you know like in, in all of that sort of forced silence you find a way to to talk to to give um, voice to your thoughts and to your fears and to your weaknesses and to everything that makes you human basically yeah so I'm going to move on to some questions that we've got coming in there was one question off Instagram what are those questions that writers have to ask themselves about identity in order to write about their culture yeah, I saw that question. Um, I think it's a very it's it's a very comp. I don't think there is a there is a simple. Sort it's of a really like large question, isn't yes, it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like <clears throat> everybody has a different relationship with to their culture, the culture they come from, the culture they live in. You know, for me, it, it gets more and more complicated the older I get because I move around and I learn new things and. Um, I think about my identity and for a long while, you know, my identity, especially as a writer, let's say, was so much connected to my family's history and it still is. 
but I'm trying to find myself as a person and as a writer. Like, who am I now outside of that history? Who am I now? So I don't think it's so much about our culture. It's just everything that we come from, all the stories that we come from, you know, it's about our grandparents as much as it's about what we ate when we were for breakfast, when we were children. And it's as much about what, you know, we listen to. So I think it's about the story you want to write you I, I, and the character you want to write. And that's part of, that part of your culture comes in. Uh, I don't think it's about representing. I think it's, it's about authenticity, whatever is authentic to you. And it's just about humanity, really. I mean, it's just really hard to say, you know, I think that our values and our characters and our, um, I don't know, sense of ourselves is also very human. So, I mean, it could be very universal as at the same time as it is very culturally rooted. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a better answer. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) So let me ask you um, a question uh, from the chat. This is from Claire. I'm curious about how you take care of yourself while writing about difficult, traumatic topics. I'm also a writer and I'm currently writing a lot about sexual trauma. I found that I need to take extra good care of myself while writing about this topic. And I'm wondering if you'd be able to share your own practices. What do you think? Yes. Um, Yes, you've got to take care of yourself. And um, I do a lot of yoga, like your, your character. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, like being with friends, it helps a lot. And I think also giving yourself time or at least, I mean, you know, when I write about a difficult, when I write a difficult scene, I really need some time off. So I'm like a zombie sometimes, you know, I'm just going around. It's just, it's just everything's just too much. And just taking a walk, drinking tea, but definitely not forcing yourself to continue if you you can, if you find it hard. Tomorrow would be another day and you can go back to it. I think that's one main thing. And definitely I keep reading. Reading is really good because I feel like everybody has a lot of pain to deal with. And so that makes it, you know, that whole part that is not personal, it makes it makes me sort of not like, oh, so thank God they're in pain too. Not like that, but it brings all of us closer together. You know, even if we don't know each other, it it creates this sense of empathy, which helps and good food and good wine. I think (laughs) a lot of it. (laughs) Yeah, really enjoying your life, I think is a is a good move. And it's an act of resistance, isn't it, to enjoy your life? in a way, Absolutely. with everything that we all go through. I, I'll answer that question too, that I, actually, that's funny, I don't read when I'm writing because I find that it interferes with my voice that I pick yeah. up, yeah. <laughs> other authors' voices yeah. and stuff. But I find that, you know, when your book contains something like coercive control, it's not like every single scene is going to have that in it. And so I kind of focus on the on the on the other bits and I I try to keep the difficult stuff ticking through in my head so I'm I'm writing about this relationship that is kind of based on a relationship that I had because my book is autofiction and I I'm just like not quite sure how to represent it and how much of it should be true and how much of it shouldn't be but I'm letting it tick away in my mind and I'm not forcing myself to go straight to those scenes I'm doing other making other priorities So Kyle has asked, 
How do we help others effectively recognise the beginnings of coercive control in their government systems? In other words, what steps can be taken to stop coercive control before it becomes all-encompassing? I'm going to add something to this question because obviously we're talking from the point of view of being writers. Um, How do we reach people through writing and, and through books? And how do we, I kind of ask you this question a little bit, but how do we expect fiction to to reach people as opposed to writing as a journalist or something? Well, I think one thing is that, again, it goes back to the idea of stories and how stories bring us closer to each other because stories are fundamentally human. So we're not just, it's not just an exchange of information. It's not just letting, you know, you know, facts. It's about the emotion behind that fact, those facts, and it's about the humanity behind that fact. So I, you know, one reason I always, I'm obsessively writing about not, you know, through my family, through my family's history, writing about dictatorships and resistance is just, it's that I wanted people to come into the house of activists, political Mm -hmm. activists. We always sort of have this image of them as these like sort of people out there, you know, being angry and shouting and not having a life maybe. Um, But in reality, they, they do, they have families and they have, and they have, they, they, they feel love and they feel pain and um, they have to make a lot of sacrifices to, to, do what they do. And I want to also underline that a lot of times we forget that we have whatever we have, whatever freedom we have, whatever rights we have is because somebody at a certain point in history fought for that. They did, It didn't just fall from the skies. So it was important for me to just show how that is. How do people live while fighting something so much bigger than them? And um, and so and so when you do them, story like that and so many other stories, it 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 tries to make you understand something beyond the facts. It tries to make you understand or, or show you the, the emotions and the hardships and the joys. And um, so to answer that question of like when it is too late, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's always too late with dictatorships, you know, like um, it's, 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 it's actually maybe it's not even about too late or too soon. It's just about that continuation of that fight, you know? So you write because at that point you feel like this is an important story to tell. And then people come after you and they would write their own story. And then we would keep writing stories until there's, until we live in a, in a world where we don't have to worry about writing these same stories, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I want to say as well that fiction um, reaches a lot of people. And when you're writing nonfiction, obviously the people reaching for your book are particularly interested in that topic. But fiction can be about, you know, somebody getting on an on an airplane and picks picks up a best-selling book and it happens to be, a, be about state control in Iran and how people live through that and live on after that. And that can impact a wider audience, perhaps, than nonfiction. Phil asks, has the responsibility to bear witness inhibited the free reign of your imagination? Do you ever mourn the writing you might otherwise have been able to work on? And will this be easier to do as time goes by? I think this is a question that I will ask myself forever and I will I will I will not have an answer for because um you know, I always said, even with Jacaranda, it wasn't like one day I woke up, I wanted to be a writer. That's all I knew. But I, it wasn't like, oh, I need to tell these stories. I didn't know those stories mattered. I, I, when I tried first, 
on my hand at writing, I wrote about anything but these stories. Um, and then at a certain point, like I always say these stories came to me. I really didn't go after them because I think they were just sort of ordinary to me. It was my life. I didn't even think that would be interesting to anybody else. I never thought my, a birth in prison could be interesting until I wrote it and people read it. And I thought, oh, okay. I, I never thought that before. So I think... Um, I'm writing it only because it's calling me and it's not, it's, I don't, I'm not writing because I feel like I need to write it. Of course, you, you realize the importance of it because people react to it and people sort of maybe relate to it or identify with it throughout the world. But it wasn't sort of um, something that I decided to do. But the more you write it, the more it becomes part of you. And the more you realize you have a lot more to say about it. So maybe one day, I'll be done talking about this. And maybe one day I'll be talking about something else. And whenever I think about that, I'm not sure if it's going to be a feeling of liberation or a feeling of abandonment, me being abandoned by my stories. Um, and I will know that when that happens. I, so uh, I'm writing this trilogy. It's an autofiction trilogy. And the first one is going to be called Ordinary Woman Turns 30. That's what I'm working on right now. But I'm also going to write Ordinary Woman Has Baby and Ordinary Woman Gets Married. And they're all, they're all going to be about this kind of narrative that we are handed about what having a successful life looks like, that you grow up, you get a career, you get married, you have a baby. And um, that that really doesn't happen for everyone and it's not the one way to happiness and uh, alongside that sometimes that's a narrative that has the tendency to traumatize women to to push them to stay in relationships that they wouldn't have otherwise because they think a relationship is the way to success and I certainly don't regret my journey of trying to have children and, and losing them but that pushes women to go through traumatic things um, in their lifetime um, in, in order to try and have children. So I, I, I feel like I have to write about those things because they're a, a journey that I went through. And even as a really, I've, I'd like to say, liberated and progressive person, I was convinced that actually the, the success story in life would be to be partnered. And for that reason, stayed in two relationships that that I really shouldn't have stayed in that featured some coercive control. So for me, writing is a kind of catharsis. And, and I think, uh, as you say, Sahar, you, you know, you'll, you'll be asking that question forever, but there'll never be an answer because this is the one life that we get. And these are the stories that we have. And so, you know, it's almost an impossible question, really. But it's nice to have something to write about that's important, isn't it? And to feel that, you know, that you wouldn't, obviously, nobody would wish that people would go through these situations, that your mother would be in prison, or but that you're writing something that has real meaning and that you don't have to for a moment think, is this worthy of being read by lots of people? And I think sometimes that feels really important to me, that the message of a book is really important because I think writers like us tend to be quite political people as well. And it you know, the writing is not just to sit down and be a writer, but it's to say something that moves somebody. Yes. And, and you know, when you sort of base it on, on what you, what has happened to you or your family, you have such a solid 
solid ground to to stand on and to walk on. And um, this, I mean, to me, it, it helped. I mean, I, I now I think like why it's because you know you still friction. You still can't really. You don't. I don't know how my mom really reacted to things, and she doesn't even remember. So I still have to sort of imagine it and create that character and let let that character do things. But um, it comes from such strong feelings. Um, and I think that sort of translates into the page sometimes um, when, we, when we write. What we feel while writing um, definitely is seen by the reader as well. Um, so, so I think it, um, it helps when, when, you know, when you know those people so intimately, especially, it helps too. Um, it helps and it could also be complicated because there's there's a lot of feelings involved <laughs> that maybe you don't want everything translated into your writing <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's wonderful that you know that that it, it can it's important and it's important to have a voice isn't it as you were saying and it's important to have your voice out there and your mm-hmm. writing so and, I cannot yeah I can't believe it but we've got to the end of the hour <laughs> did you want to just say what you're going to say just then um no no just just that I mean it's 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 wonderful to also have people who listen to these stories you know like not only that we have something to say but we also have this um sort of who want people who want to know more about it and that's really encouraging of mm. course and life is so um different now than it was 10 years ago when our first books came out because you have this really interconnected world and lots of lots of young people who are really interested in what's going on and protesting and talking about Gaza and Ukraine and Iran and really interconnected so it's fantastic to be a part of that so um thank you so much for being here I just can't believe it's been an hour but if you're watching if you're not falling in love with this incredible human being you're doing the wrong thing because I just love Sahar so much I'm so grateful that she's out there existing and I can't wait to read her book The Luminous Blue I've got a few thank yous to do before we go I want to say thank you to the Arts Council funding and to Clear Lines Festival Clear Lines Festival is supporting us. They address sexual consult, uh, sexual assault and consent, excuse me, through the arts and discussion. You can find more information about them at clearlines.org.uk. And I will put that link in the show notes. You can also follow their newsletter in the show notes. And they have a free downloadable creative writing guide for survivors of sexual violence and abuse. Again, I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes or it's there in the chat if you are with us today. Thank you to our audience for sharing this space with us and asking really thoughtful questions. Our next event is a podcast coming out March 15th with Rowan Hizayo Buchanan. I recorded my interview with Rowan yesterday, but I'm going to put my Instagram, Abigail Tartellin underscore in the show notes, again, where you can ask questions for our next guest on April 16th. That's Winnie M. Lee talking about her thriller Complicit and about coercive control in the workplace and industry. And you can ask questions as well to our May guest, Chimen Suleiman, who will be talking about writing intimate partner violence in her novel, The Chain. Those events will be ready to book shortly on Eventbrite, so please check back on my gram, or if you know me reasonably well, expect me to personally bug you with a text about them. These are really important events, and we thank you so very much for attending. If you want to, uh, just seen our editor said you are both the best, love to you. So that's a, a great note to end on. And if you want to talk about this online, our hashtag is writingcc. Thank you, everybody, and thank you so much, Sahar. Thank you, Abby.